Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We are in a very pivotal time all over the world. One of the great blessings I have is to travel from continent to continent, nation to nation, and observe firsthand what's not, not only what's going on in the church, but what's going on in the nation. What's, what's the backdrop of what's happening in the church? How is the church surviving in the different things that are coming up in, all over the world right now? And I believe that our answers to some of the great challenges in the next decade, and I believe they will be great, not superficial, not small. I believe we're hitting a confluence of, of global issues that are going to happen at the same time. I read several years ago and preached it for a long time about because God gave me prophetic words in the 80s, early 90s, when we made these CDs about, uh, uh, about a generation that was coming that would change society, society would not change them, about, you know, what's going to be happening in the next generation, war, violence, destruction, and the overcoming power of the blood of the Lamb. And I mean, there was just so many things God spoke to me about that I'm now seeing 30 years later a real fulfillment of those kind of, uh, of words. And I happened upon a book around 2012. Uh, it was called The Rise and Fall of Great Nations. It was written by a Yale University professor. And um, in that book, he talked about that superpowers have a shelf life. And he uh, also began to talk about the things that create shifts in, in, in global affairs that uh, where, where great powers rise and then where great powers fall. And he talked about the time of the Reformation. And he said the Reformation was one of the greatest global changes that the world had seen to that point. And he said the reason was that there was a, 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 a several things that came into play at, in the same era, in the same generation, that completely changed the way the world functioned. One of them was the discovery of America. The other was uh, a change in uh, economics. Uh, the other was um, the Reformation, and, and, and the whole religion changed at that point from a, a structural Revel, uh, structure based um, relationship with God to a dynamic individual uh, relationship with God. And I know it's, those were, these are just generalizations and not true of every single person. But he was talking about all those things. And he said in 2012 at a symposium that he did in the Netherlands, and I was given the newspaper article, so that's why I went back and read uh, his book. Uh, he, they, he said in 2012 at a symposium he did that we are seeing, we are in the beginning of seeing a change in the world that we have not seen in 500 years. And he said, every generation, every century sees a certain amount of change in the world. 
But he says, what is happening in this generation is, is going to be so massive that's going to change the future of the way that global powers interact with each other because several things, like in the time of the Reformation, are coming to play at the same time on a macro level. And he described what they were. You can, you can read it uh, yourself in, in uh, his book or his essays. But, but he described what they were. And then he said this most interesting statement. He said, the people that were born 500 years ago had no idea that the world that they were born into would be fundamentally different before they died. In one generation of people, everything was changing. And he said, it's that kind of shift that we will be facing now. And I really believe that. Long before I read his book, the Lord was speaking to me about that. And, and, uh, and so I believe when things change, people hate change. Most of you came in here and sat in the same chair, minimum, same section that you sit in every single week. And if somebody sits in your chair, it's a problem. You know, the little things bug us. But when there's great shifts, we do not know how to navigate it. And, and great shifts cause fear if we are not rooted and grounded in faith. My just one lives by his faith, and God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. And so... We have to be keeping the end goal of our faith in mind. We're not coming from week to week or month to month or even, you know, have a vision for this year. We have to be looking in the long term about, about what our end goal, what is the end goal of my life? I was asked in Brazil uh, what, by my friend, said so, because I, I was asking them, I said, so what do you feel your calling is on life for the rest of your life. What is the thing that you want to accomplish, you know, by the end of your life? And so they were telling me, and then they flipped it, and they said, so what's the thing you want to accomplish? And I said, I want, when I look at Jesus face to face, I want to say to him, I finished the work you gave me to do, and I gave my life to answering your prayers. I gave him, and I studied the prayers of God to know what he wants and what he likes. But, um, but, but we have to keep end goals. What's the end goal of your life? What do you want to say? And we have to, you know, I was doing a Google retreat a couple weeks ago, and the Google people were telling me that the church calls people globalists, and we all know the term globalist, and it has kind of a nefarious con connotation, but the globalists actually call themselves altruistic, no, effective altruists and long-termists, and meaning, you can study those words out, but meaning that they have a long-term goal that they're actually working for, and they're doing it you know, for the good of humanity, or so they think, and they, an effective altruism adds a component that sometimes you have to sacrifice a little bit for the long-term goal for the salvation of humanity, and without God, it becomes a very dark agenda. But with God, we also have an end goal, 
And many Christians that I talk to have no idea of the end goal of their part of what they're called to do. So we have to keep the end goal of our faith in mind. We have to inquire of the Lord, what is it that you want me to accomplish and my association of people and how to influence my, those that you've put in my daily life so that we're all working together to see the same end goal. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the end goal of being a Christian is to know him. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life, that we may know him and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Ephesians 4 says the same thing. All the gifts that come from God, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, says, you know, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but you know Ephesians 4. Anyways, says, but he gives these gifts to equip the saints until there's an end goal of the gifts until we come to the unity of the faith, all the gifts are supposed to be working for the unity of the faith. And every gift working separately and independently without that end goal is working in antithesis to the purpose that the, the, the gift was given for. To the unity of the faith, the knowledge of God, a mature man equal to the measure of the stature of Jesus. So, you know, God, in the language of Mike Bickle, is looking for an equally yoked lover, a bride that's equal to the measure of the stature of Christ. And we must always keep these end goals in mind so that, you know, we have the same biblical end goal. We're all reading the same Bible. If we're all studying it and we put those end goals in front of us, then we will begin to move as one under the head and we will accomplish more together than any one of us could ever accomplish alone. So we, we together come to Disciple Nations. I just love this church. I tell you, if I lived here, I would come to this church. I love this church. I love your missions. I love your worship. I love uh, your, your leaders. They're just amazing. Um, and I go to a lot of churches, and I can't say that I love all of them. I mean, the, the believers I do, but the praxis, not, the, not, not so much. But... But uh, anyway, so we have to, oh, I just lost my notes. Uh, and in order to do that, in order to disciple nations, accomplish the Great Commission, we have to do it by beholding God. Because he's the head, we're the body, he gives individual gifts as he wants to. He makes some this and some that. And all of us are supposed to be so connected to the head that we move as one with very different gifts, very different age groups, very different agendas, different callings, different... And unless we're connected to the head, we will be doing the antithesis of the end goal of our faith. So, uh, um, in short... We're called to behold him till we become like him. And his kingdom comes on earth, comes in Des Moines, comes in Iowa. And so to do this, our primary focus, as I just said, must be God himself. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this in the NASB, but we all with unveiled face, the veil has been torn into, we can look directly at him, you know, through his word, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. 
We are being transformed as we behold him into the same image, the very image of God. And we go from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the spirit. The NIV says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory which comes from the Lord, his spirit. And God's expectation is that we increase in glory. We go from glory to glory to glory. And that our whole life is an ever increasing movement of the increase of his government. There will be no end. And every gift he gives is meant to be multiplied. And all of these things, like it's, it's getting bigger and better and more, you know, yes. So uh, we are transformed into increasing measures of glory, reflecting who he is on the earth in our daily life and doing his work with his heart. So this begs the question, what is glory? How do we go from glory to glory? I mean, glory is a rather esoteric term. It's kind of like, well, you know, what is it? It's like manna, the, the word manna meant like, what is it? That just kind of fell from heaven or came up from the ground. Like, what is it? You know? And I was confronted with this question many years ago when I was praying through John 17. I, I, I was about 40 years old, 39, 38, 41. I don't know exactly in that age group. And I was praying uh, through John. I was praying just through the Bible, and I must have hit something like, you know, we only love him because he first loved us. And then I started contemplating that and how from a child God began to speak to me and in my teenage years and, you know, dis different times where I, he healed me, how he saved me, and then how my family got saved and all, all of these things. And, and I was just became so grateful. I was weeping with gratitude by myself in my room. And, and out of my spirit came these words, Lord, you've answered so many of my prayers. I'm going to give the rest of my life to answering yours. And which set me on a trajectory. I didn't really know what God prayed about. I didn't like, I didn't, well, okay, what does God pray about? I know what I pray about. I know, um, well, you know, I'm always praying. I'm always, and I'm always asking for things. I do a lot of petition. Uh, what, 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 and, and worship. But what does God pray about? What's, what does God want? So, of course, I landed on Psalm 2, ask me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, that messianic psalm. But, and so I, I, I pray a lot about nations. I ask God to help me. And no, but nobody's going to do this alone. This is going to take all of us working full stop. You know, we're running full, full, full out to actually see these things happen. But, uh, but I want to be part of it. I don't want to be a spectator. I want to be actively involved in answering his prayer. That, but the longest prayer that we ever hear God pray, God the Son pray, is John 17. And, you know, typically I never heard any sermons on John 17. I never... Uh, I just wasn't in, I heard lots of sermons about lots of other things, but not the longest prayer that Jesus ever prayed. And this is the prayer of a dying man. He knows he's going to go to the cross. 
He knows he's going to give his life for the salvation of mankind. He knows that, you know, he's only going to be them a, a, a little while longer. And, and he prays this prayer for his disciples. And not just for his disciples. He says, I'm praying not for them alone, the ones in this room, but for all those who will believe in me through their witness. So each one of us who have believed in Jesus through the apostolic witness of the early church, I mean, he's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for us here in this room. And what is God praying for us? We know that he ever lives to make intercession. He's praying right now for you. And he's praying for your family. But he's praying something very, very specific. And he starts praying that he, you know, uh, and especially when I, I hit, he prays that we would be one. And I go, wow, this matters to God. How we live with each other matters to God. How we interact, how we work using all our gifts until we hit the unity of the faith. This is a big deal. And in verse 22 is the verse that just kind of smacked me up the side of the head. He says this, and he's talking to his father. And he says, I have given them all the ones he's prayed for. I have already given them. He's, he's, he's given it to his disciples. He's given it to you. He's given it to me. When we believe in Jesus, he said, I have given them past tense. This is not a future thing. This is not something that's going to happen only when you see Jesus face to face. God has given you the glory, Jesus says, I have given to my disciples the glory that the Father gave to Jesus. Whoa. Like that's a big deal. And why did he give us his glory? He gave it for a reason. And the reason he gave us the glory, his glory, the very glory that the Father gave to the Son, and elsewhere in that same chapter he says, the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. Jesus gave that to all of us as his disciples. Say that I have the glory of God. It has been given to me. I already possess it. It's not something in the sweet by and by. It's, it's, I have it. The question is, what is it? Uh, so, so what is it? So from that text, I started going, okay, glory, glory, glory. You know, I, I started going through the scriptures to figure out what is Glory. And I, you know, go to my concordance and look up all the words on glory. And, you know, and I, I go, is glory a cloud because the glory of the Lord came and the temple was built and they all fell face down? And is glory a cloud? And, and, and I'm like, what is it? So how will I know or what, what is the manifestation of glory that, that is visible and demonstrable showing that I have it? Will a cloud appear over my head? And I will walk around in the clouds? Well, is that what happened? Because cloud is often a manifestation of glory. That uh, it, often when the, uh, the Bible talks about the glory of the Lord coming, it comes in the form of a cloud from Exodus 16, 7 to 10. You shall see the glory of the Lord 
because he heard your grumbling against him. So don't grumble, okay? And, and they looked up towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. We see that in Exodus 40. Then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting, and Moses was not able to enter it because... Uh, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So there is a manifestation of a cloud. You know, we can see it in Second Chronicles 5. We can see it in Exodus 19. You know, it also manifests in trembling, the thick cloud, Exodus 19 comes. It, it, it manifests in fire, descended on fire. And uh, it goes on to say that they saw the God of Israel and Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered it. This is all in Exodus 19. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai for six days. The cloud covered it. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire. So a cloud is a manifestation. The consuming fire on the mountaintops was a manifestation. And Moses went into the cloud. Come on. I love Moses. Uh, and he remained in the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So I'm thinking, God, well, how do I know I have it? How, like, if I'm supposed to go from glory to glory, do I go like a cloud over me? And then it moves into fire and then my face shines? Or, well, like, what? What? What is it? What does it look like? And it, um, it, it provoked me. It provoked me to just do a huge study on glory. And um, I, I feel like a lot of times we know something, but we don't really know something. We have cognitive knowledge without experiential knowledge. And I, 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 many years ago, what my husband's really radical evangelist. I'm not. I don't really like it, but I do it because the Bible says so. And, uh, and uh, we were out witnessing on the streets all the time before we had kids. And one time, uh, there, we were also preaching all the time, and we had this young girl that was running away from her parents and her parents went to the church and we said well she can come and live with us so we let her come and live with us and when she came to our house uh she uh was uh, she was you know kind of troubled and we were trying to help her and one day she went out in the fields and she caught a couple of mice with her boyfriend and she brought them back home and said, please, can I keep these mice in your apartment? You know, and I, I, my instinct was no, you know, because I have five brothers, and they used to chase me with snakes and rodents and insects, and I hate mice. I don't like them. But then she started crying, and I knew she was having such a hard time. She said, I'll take good care of them. You know, I'll put them in the fish tank with no water, and, um, uh, and I'll, you know, I'll come and I'll feed them. I'll do everything. I'll just keep them in my room. Can I please keep these mice? And so against my better judgment, I said, okay, you can keep the mice as long as you take care of them, and they're in your room. And I'm going somewhere with this, men. I do have a point, okay? I do have a point. So just bear with me. So anyway, as the next morning, I get out of bed. I got out of our waterbed at the time. I got out of my, our waterbed. And when I stepped on the floor, something ran across my, my feet. And it was a mouse. And I did what any normal female would do. I jumped on the waterbed and went, ah! 
no, and, and I screamed, and I said, yeah, it's a mouse, and anyway, we started looking for the mice, we could not find them, there were two of them, and finally, after a day and a half of searching hard, I, I thought, well, they must have left the house, because they're not here, they must have left the apartment building, so... I was getting ready to go watch Wesley play soccer one night back in the day. He used to do evangelism by joining the city teams and all that, and I would cheer him on. So I was getting ready, and I was putting on my jeans. And as I was putting on my jeans, uh, I got in the car. I, you know, I, I got all ready to go watch him on the soccer game. And we're driving in the car to the soccer game, and I had my hand on my pants like this. My jeans, they were, you know, tight jeans back in the day. And I put my hand on my pants, and I, there was something soft. So, so, I, so I rubbed it. And when I rubbed it, it was furry. And, and I realized there's a mouse in my pants. And I freaked out. I freaked out. I, I mean, I lost it. I went, ah! And I pulled off my pants. And I ran under the steering wheel. And when I pulled off my pants, the, the mouse went twitching on the seat like that. So I wanted to get away. So I ducked under Wesley's arms. And, you know, he's driving the car. He's going, what? 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 You know, what is going on? And I said, I finally squeaked out. There, there's a and he's, he's going, and by that time he'd pulled the car over, nearly had an accident, and he's looking in my pants, and relatively calmly he says, Stacy, you know, he didn't roll his eyes, but, and, he, and he didn't say, you idiot, he, what he said was, Stacy, there's no mouse in your pants. And he didn't see that it had fallen on the seat, so I, you know, like that, and, and then... Wesley finally saw it, and he goes, oh, and he gets out of the car, comes around the other side, he picks up the mouse, and my knight in shining armory saves me from the terrible mouse, you know, it was awesome. But I bring this up to say that when you know something without knowing something, your behavior is totally different. And the more that you know it, experience it, you know, he who has been forgiven much loves much. And uh, the, the more that you experience the attributes of God, the more our behavior actually changes in daily life. And Moses, this the penultimate God chaser, Moses is my favorite person in the whole Bible uh, because Moses was never satisfied. And I remembered in this study on John 17, going through all these scriptures on glory, I remembered that Moses had prayed this prayer, show me your glory. I had sung the song. I had, you know, I had sung, show me your glory, show me your faith. I'd say all those things, we, I'd sung it, but I actually hadn't, couldn't remember what the answer was to Moses' prayer, show me your glory. So I start flipping through the book of Exodus, and, and I realize, okay, it's not there at the burning bush. You know, and he takes his feet off. It's holy ground. It's not there to let my people go in all the plagues. And, and it's not there in the wilderness when God, when he sees like the cloud by day, the, the fire by night. And I started saying, wow, Moses experienced more of God than any other human being in the entire Bible with the 
exception of Jesus, but Jesus emptied himself. So even possibly some of those things. Moses didn't feed 5,000, you know, once. Moses was in a, in a situation where the Lord himself fed up to a million people, they say, maybe two, uh, for 40 years, every single day of his life, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out. He heard the audible voice of God, and he didn't camp on, take off your shoes, you're standing on holy ground. He didn't camp when the, the bush combusted. He actually, it created something inside of him. I have to have more. He didn't stop at power where let my people go, boom. You know, can you imagine having that kind of power that at your words, you know, say let my people go and plagues are released on your enemies all over. Like, I don't know what I would do with that kind of power. But the Bible says of Moses, or Moses wrote it about himself, that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. And he never stopped there. He didn't stop in the wilderness. He didn't stop by seeing power. Like the apostle Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We want to experience. It's not good enough to have head knowledge about the power of his resurrection. It must start manifesting in your daily life and my daily life. We want to see it. We don't want to hear about it. We don't want to be spectators. We want to know him and the power of his resurrection. The fellowship of his sufferings, Paul said. And I think this is like progression in the spirit. Maybe regression in you know, natural life. But the power of his resurrection unto the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformed to his death. The, the actual full identification with everything about Jesus' life. And Moses experienced power. Moses experienced, you know, by the time when you read through all of the things that Moses saw, the sons of Korah, the ground opening up, you know, the, the, the striking the rock, the water coming out, that wasn't a good one, but, uh, but, but uh, you know, all those things that Moses was able to see in the power of, of God and demonstrable in his daily life in front of millions of people. But Moses you know, just kept going. And he was always hungry. He always wanted more. He never stalled out. And so by the time you get to Exodus 24, you see God inviting Moses up, you know, onto the mountain with 70 elders. And they actually sit on the sapphire sea. And the Bible says they ate and drank with God. They had lunch with God. And after that, after the burning bush, after the plagues, after the wilderness, after the eating and drinking with God and the elders, you know, after the, the uh, you know, getting the finger of God, you know, the, the tablets of stone, after that, Moses prays this prayer. And he says, so I'm flipping through to find out where Moses prayed the prayer. And it's at the end of his life, not the beginning. And in Exodus 33, he prays, uh, Lord, uh, 
if I found favor in your sight. Teach me your ways so that I can find favor in your sight. We want to know the ways of God. We want to conform our ways to his ways and not the other way around. And he said, teach me your ways. And after that, I think, you know, sometimes when you're in these beautiful worship times where you just hit this place in your heart and in your spirit, and I know many of you have hit that, where you just said, anything, God. I'll do anything. I'll go any, uh, anything. You just want God more than anything. I think Moses hit that state, and finally he couldn't stand it anymore, and he goes, show me your glory. Now, in Moses' day, this was a life-threatening prayer. God said, nobody can see my face and live. He said, however, because you asked, this one, Moses, is so big. This prayer to see my glory is so big that nobody can come with you. There's no elders coming. We're not having lunch. We're, uh, and I can only show you the hind parts so I have to hide you in the cleft of the rock. You have to come alone. Not even an animal can stand on the mountain. It begins to shake. The Bible says that all of the Israelites were afraid. And Moses ascends the mountain alone. Trembling mountain. Not knowing what's going to happen to him when he gets there. But he's braving the fear. He's going beyond his own I don't know, what if I pray that prayer, what's going to happen? And some of you have had those kind of encounters and experiences. I remember reading in the book of Revelation about martyrs. And, you know, about these ones get to serve him day and night in his temple. I said, wow, what do you have to do to get that job in heaven? You know, I thought, that's the job I want. I don't want to rule anything. I just, I just want to be with him. I just want to, be like, whatever he wants. If he's thirsty, whatever, you know, I... I I don't think he eats and drinks, but, you know, uh, anyway, like he said, I thirst. Whatever it is, the, these are the ones. And so I read further, and, um, and I realized it was the martyrs. And I thought, okay. I began, and so I, it set me on a time of prayer where I just wanted to pray about being martyrs. And so I was praying about being a martyr, and I began to read my children, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs at night, and then Jesus Freaks and everything, because I wanted to, to learn about it. And I was, tell, you know, I was obsessed with it. And every day I'm going, God, you know, I don't know if I could stand martyrdom, because when you read those, uh, some of those books, like Fox's Book of Martyrs, some people recant, and I'm thinking, what if they pull my fingers off one by one, you know, and what if they dip me in boiling oil? And I'm thinking, of all the terrible things that could happen to me in martyrdom. I, you, you know what I'm talking about. You probably prayed like that too. And so I'm, I'm by myself in the privacy of my own bedroom and all of a sudden I hear the audible voice of God and I could hear the intonation. I could hear every bit of it. And it was as though God rolled his eyes. I didn't see him. He just talked. And he goes, it is enough for me that you die daily. And I realized, okay, maybe if I was just kinder to my children, maybe if I was just, you know, all the things that, because I was so worried about the sweet by and by that I, you know, in the privacy of my own room, nobody knows, I, I prayed that prayer. And God was saying, like, what really matters to me, Stacy, is how you live your daily life. Take up your cross every single day. And be a Christian today. 
Be a good wife today. Be a good mom today. Be, you know, a good neighbor today. And, uh, and, and in those days, uh, I, I had five little kids and I was stressed. And so God just began to speak to me about how I was parenting. And I'm thinking about martyrdom and he's thinking about, you know, parenting. So, so, um, uh, so God, Moses prays this life-threatening prayer and he goes up into the mountain and this prayer is so big. It's the biggest prayer Moses has ever prayed. It's so big that God said, I can only show you my hind part. You get in that cleft of that rock and I'm going to put my hand there and, you know, and, but God says to Moses, I will do the very thing you've asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Moses pulled something out of heaven before it's time. You know, he saw before it's time. And Moses said, okay, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name. So he's telling him that in Exodus 33, you can read it. I'm, I'm running out of time, so I'm going to fast forward. But when he gets to the point where he shows him his glory, this is what he saw. The biggest pinnacle of all of Moses' life by himself in the cleft with the hand of God covering him and the hind parts of God passing by. And when the Lord passes by and shows him his glory, what he does is he passes by and the, this is the answer to the prayer. Show me your glory. Exodus 34, 6. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord... The Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bows his head to the earth and worshiped. And this revelation of the glory of God is the revelation of who he is as a person. And he said that he's merciful and he's gracious and he's long-suffering, and he abounds in, uh, he abounds in truth and, uh, anyway, uh, abounds in goodness and truth. He keeps, he keeps mercy for thousands, for forgiveness. All of these things are the attributes of the glory of God himself. And so when he gets to John 17 and jo Jesus is praying over his disciples, I have given them this glory, your glory, the capacity to be merciful, the capacity to be gracious, 
the capacity to be long-suffering. You possess this, and you can move from glory to glory. You can go from compassion to grace to long-suffering to goodness to truth to forgiveness to, you know, to, uh, uh, and to justice at the end. And what I discovered is that it was glory to glory to glory to glory. And you have been given the very glory of God that you might live it in your home and in your neighborhood, at your workplace, and display it everywhere around you. And God gave you this glory so that you would be one. And he prays that his church would be one so that the whole world would believe that the Father sent Jesus and that he loves them. Read John 17. Pray John 17. I prayed John 17 for decades. And what God, because John 17, if we actually hit that state on earth, this is not some trite or some superficial unity. This is the substance of one that the Godhead shares. Just like you, Father, are in me and I am in you, I pray that they would be in us and that they would be one just like we are. We, God, at Jesus' longest prayer that he prays for all his disciples is for us to be one. Why? Because our capacity to use the glory of God towards each other, mercy, grace, long-suffering, that we live in those attributes, forgiving, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And at the end of it, you know, the last part of the glory is justice. As a prophet, I like justice to be the first part. Like, fix it, you know. James and John bring down fire from heaven and, you know, burn them up. And, you know, Moses, strike the rock. I mean, we, when we feel that offense, we don't necessarily walk in mercy and compassion, long-suffering like God does towards all humankind. And he gave us this. And what is astounding to me that our capacity to release the glory of God in our daily life results in us being one. And when we hit that state, revival breaks out. The whole world will believe this is the biggest power that God has given his very glory to for so that the world would believe. I mean, this is greater than signs. This is greater than wonders. This is greater than anything. Our capacity to hit that state and live in a state of oneness is so attractive to God because it's who he is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is central to the knowledge of God. And Jesus said, I and the Father are one, and they picked up stones to stone him. This is a big deal. So how does this work out in a practical application, and I'm going to uh, end with this. I was, I prayed this prayer for so long, and, and a lot of times the thing that you're called to, you have to overcome the opposite of what you're called to, overcome division. You have to overcome the separation. You have to overcome, uh, you know, the, uh, all kinds of different things. But because I think I've prayed this prayer for so long, I was recently given an opportunity 
the, Jesus is praying this for his whole church. Every true believer in every single denomination. You know, not that there are not false believers in every single denomination. And not that there are, uh, you know, that there's perfection, but the, the real ones, Jesus lets the wheat and the tares grow together. He will use his winnowing fork and he will separate them at the end of the age. We don't have to worry about that. That will happen. Uh, but uh, I was given an opportunity in August to be part of an unprecedented opportunity. And in this opportunity, the Catholics asked a young the Pope's preacher asked a young uh, uh, Portuguese pastor, evangelical pastor, to do a stadium event of worship and evangelization in the middle of World Youth Day, where 1.5 million Catholic young people descended in Lisbon, Portugal in, in the month of August. And I was actually part one of the, the key people to help raise the, we raised over, Wesley and I personally, over $750,000 of the million dollars needed to rent the stadium. We gathered people, we enfranchised, you know, Mike Bickle and Bill Johnson and Heidi Baker and Patricia King and, you know, all the, the relationships we had, Cheyenne, we, we enfranchised them all to actually help support. Many of them flew there to the stadium event, but, uh, but it was a, it was the Catholics that invited us to put on a gospel presentation where we all worship Jesus together for, you know, and they had at the, they had Taya from Hillsong that wrote the book, that wrote the song Oceans. They had, uh, um, they had Alessandra Boa, Bosa who wrote the song uh, about Jesus, uh, he's, a, he's a Portuguese. They had different worship leaders from all over the world, from Hillsong, from IHOP, from, uh, from everywhere. And they said, the evangelicals can put it on because you're good at preaching the gospel. And we will join you. And we will do it together because there are believers in the Catholic Church that realize this prayer is yet to be answered and they wanted to do something, a new demonstration for the next generation that, that, that the church is shifting from division, which is not holy. Uh, I mean, there is a, sometimes God separates, uh, but, but when it's acrimonious division for centuries, that has to be overcome. And who has the courage to walk towards? We have to have courage we have to use the glory of God that is in us and say, maybe we're the generation that is going to break down 500 years of, di of division. And the first 1,500 years of the church, virtually uh, other than the Orthodox, was all Catholic. And we can't cut off our history because that's a foundation of our faith. The early part of the church, you know, there, and so... And not that I agree with everything the Catholics do, and not they, that they agree with everything that I do, or we do. But there is a prayer that God himself is praying, that all of us should be praying along with him, and that it will take courage to walk towards. And the thing that really bothers me, and this is where my prophetic angst comes up, is that 
As soon, you know, in the Bible, when Peter was compromising on doctrine, Paul goes up to him, and Paul withstood him. The Bible says Paul withstood Peter to the face. Optimal prepositional phrase, to the face. Not on Facebook, not on social media, not from a pulpit, not talking about to everybody else who has your same belief set. He walked over, he found the person that had, you know, that was saying something that was against what the Lord was doing, and he talked to him to the face. And so, it's very important to have the courage to walk towards and to support those who walk towards. And in my walking towards Catholics, I discovered that in 1991, the Catholics changed their official doctrine of their church to one of the key tenets of the Reformation that caused the whole uh, division in the first place, which was justification by faith alone. And they have written in all of their documents that salvation is justification by faith alone unto good works, like Ephesians 2 says, that God has foreordained that we should walk in. And they've actually changed their doctrine for over 20-some years to actually comply with the early tenets of the Reformation. And none of us know, and many of us are still afraid because we've heard, had centuries of gossip and um, fear and stuff passed down to us. And very few of us have actually walked towards them and said, tell me what you really believe about faith. Tell me how you live your Christian life. And then if there's a problem, that's how you can solve it. To the face. We can walk towards. But we do walk towards because we want to obey Jesus. We want to answer his prayers. We want to actually set, set something different in our generation and overcome the bloodshed of the 100-year war, the 30-year war, one of the bloodiest periods in, in, in church history, or I think the bloodiest period in church history of Christian killing Christian. It, 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 it's so rolled out that the Anabaptists killed the, the Lutherans. And I mean, the Luther, it just was horrific if, if you read it. And so I said all of that to say that Iowa is a state that has an opportunity of a lifetime. And that opportunity of a lifetime must be seized within the lifetime of the opportunity. And your ability to walk towards even what's, what's happening in this state with the heartbeat bill, that's not a political issue, it's a biblical issue. And we need to learn to ferret out what's political and what's biblical we have to have critical thinking and boil it down to what's, what's the biblical thing here where we fight towards. And minimally, we have co-belligerence, you know, because we're fighting for the same thing. And I believe that God is giving an opportunity, even out of this issue, for maybe us to walk together and maybe or walk towards. And as we walk towards, maybe something will happen here that would be so big that, 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 that Iowa would be the state of harvest 
where the greatest harvest of the world begins because that prayer of Jesus is answered and harvest, harvest, harvest actually takes place and people flock here to say, how did you do it? How did you overcome? How did you walk towards? How did you, you know, refine a doctrine? You know, because we all want truth. Truth is part of the glory of God. And truth and love are not mutually exclusive. And if we have to suppress, no, I won't say that, you know, uh, but the, the great end goal is that we love God with all our heart. The greatest commandment in the whole Bible is that we love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and our neighbor as ourself. And when we get to heaven, we want to look him in the face and say, I did it. I loved my neighbor. I loved all my neighbors. I loved the ones you put in front of me. I, even the ones I initially didn't like, I walked towards them. And I walked again and again and again. And I learned what part of the image of God that they carried. And I gave myself to bringing that image out, no matter what, how distorted it was when I first met it. You know, that person. And so, Lord, we just pray. I want you to stand. It's, I'm over time. And Father, it's not... Uh, like, I think the pastor prayed this. I forget who said this sometime this weekend. But for such a time as this, Iowa, you have a prophetic destiny. Your destiny is harvest. The prophetic words over your state are harvest. The, the, the manifestation in the natural is harvest. But it will take every single believer that actually knows Jesus, that's increasing in the knowledge of God and walking towards first God, then the neighbor, uh, coming about to bring about something so big that it might impact the entire world with a, a revelation of harvest. Lord, I am praying that you would even now be putting in the minds of your people someone they need to walk towards. Someone they've been avoiding. Someone that they've been fearful of. Lord, that, that the greater love that you have given us would cast out fear. The perfect love that comes from you would cast out our fears. That we would walk towards, Lord, we would befriend. We would build bridges, not walls. We would not walk in the division that's been passed down to us, but we would start something new in this generation that would impact the whole world and would answer your prayer for the glory of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And I feel like there's a number of you that are called to be peacemakers. And I, I just want, you know, I know we've got to go get the kids. And I taught 35 two-year-olds for five years, you know, in the back room, and it's cruel and unusual punishment to leave a teacher back there. Please go get your kids if you have them. But I do feel to pray specifically for those of you who know you're called to be peacemakers. And I'd like you to come forward. I'm just gonna pray for you here at the front with the, the ministry team. But you know you have a calling for peacemaking. I just want you to come. And it takes courage to walk towards. When none of your friends are going there, when all of that you've known is to walk away. Lord, I pray, like the rest of you just stretch their hands because, you know, this, they're going to be on the front lines of this battle. And Lord, we pray 
God, and yeah, and uh, I don't know who you are, but you are, I feel that the Lord has put this issue so deeply in your heart that you've been praying about this for decades. You've actually not just been praying about it, you've been walking towards. I see you've gone, you've gone to other places and you've prayed with them and you've found out things that you didn't know and that you are a forerunner in this. And I feel the Lord wants you to start giving testimonies of the things that you've experienced when you've walked towards and when you've seen that. And the Lord's going to use your mouth and, and you're going to say, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And I, I feel like, you know, every time it's just put this deep groaning inside of you of prayer. There's groans too deep to be uttered. And I see you in intercession, almost just groaning in prayer, just like it, not even it, wordless. It goes so deep. And the Lord says, I'm using you as a birth mother to birth something in this area and in this state. And I, I, I'm going to start using you now to give testimonies of the things that you have experienced and encountered and I even believe some of it was decades ago maybe went dormant for a bit but is resurrected now the Lord's going to say just tell the stories just tell the stories in Jesus name amen and father we pray for pastor and his wife Lord the the how much they love your presence in this place and how well they've stewarded your presence in this place Lord I pray that, that the grace you've given him to steward your presence, Lord, would flow outside of this church and into the community. And Lord, you would give him ideas and revelation how to equip different members of his body to take this grace of the presence of God into places where it isn't here. Because not everybody's going to come to church. And Lord, that, that you would give them ideas. Send the worship leaders out. Lord, send them into the highways and the byways. And I feel like God's going to start giving you ideas and, and calling you to gather. Uh, uh, sometimes we wait for somebody else to blow the trumpet. But I feel that God wants to put this gathering trumpet, this silver trumpet in your hand, that you begin to gather different leaders from around the city, uh, church leaders, maybe business leaders, maybe governmental leaders to say what can we do for our city together how can we bring the kingdom of God here how can we bring the values of righteousness and justice to Des Moines and God's going to give you ideas and I know that you don't have enough time but because people that are busy never have enough time. But I saw God giving you the counsel of Jethro to Moses. You know, put stuff on other people that you might give yourself to the next uh, level of influence and sphere of influence. And Lord, we bless him to do that. We've, I'm just so in awe of how many people know that this is your calling to be a peacemaker. And I feel that, you know, the prophets need to be gathered in this city. That the Lord wants to gather the prophetic voices that carry his heart. And I feel like you're going to be one of those that starts gathering prophetic people from other churches and other places. And the Lord's going to use you and you're going to wait on the Lord together and get a corporate word that is going to come from the prophetic voice over this city. And Lord, we pray, Lord, that the prophets would be working towards the end goal of the unity of the faith. And Lord, there would be an overcoming tribe of prophets prophets uh, that would work towards the unity of the faith and I have to say this like prophets are my tribe I love prophets 
But sometimes we have been the most divisive people in the whole church. You know, God spoke to me. He hasn't spoke to the pastor. You know, I, I, all, all these horrific things. And we leave the church and we isolate and we're not working to the end goal. And I feel that God is going to raise up a whole new company. And you're one of them that is going to lead there. And I feel the generations. And Kate, you're just extraordinary. I, I mean, just being with you the last few days. Uh, no wonder everybody loves you. Ah, because of what you carry. And Father, I pray that you would take from Kate's history. And I just felt right when I touched your hand that God is going to start bringing very old relationships back into your life. Ones that, you know, you, you, you knew from a long time ago, but haven't maybe seen or connected with them for a long time. And I feel that God is doing this strategically because they represent different places in the spirit where you've been and where you've walked. And, uh, and that you are going to gather, uh, that you are going to, uh, that in these connections, something bigger is going to go on. And I saw God giving you the strategies. I really feel that you're a very strategic uh, prophetic voice. And that, wow, the Lord is going to start giving you huge strategies and so father we pray lord for those who see into the future lord that they would know how to carry it that they would carry it with long suffering with patience god that they would uh that they would be able to uh warn and prepare the people of god for what's coming but also but do it in such a way that as many as possible are 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 saved are are are, are safe and lord we just bless her lord to get those kind of strategies long-term plans in jesus name and we pray god for more Lord, peacemakers from every generation, we ask you, Lord Jesus, uh, and I feel like God has put you in a unique uh, people group, like your, your friends, are, they're unique, and I see some of them are, go to church and some of them don't go to church, and the Lord wants to make you a bridge because your generation and younger don't understand very much the church. They're, uh, you know, they've been taught to be almost anti-church. And, uh, and I feel that you're going to be a peacemaker, be, you know, between, you're going to be a bridge builder. The Lord's going to use you very, very powerfully. And I feel like, just like Jesus hung out with the prostitutes and the sinners, uh, you know, sometimes in the church we kind of don't want to do that. But Jesus says he wants you to do that. This is your calling. He wants you to go where those, with those who aren't saved and hang out with them. I feel there's a social component that's going to bring them into the revelation of the knowledge of God. And I feel that you carry something in that. Uh, and so, Lord, we bless her to bring people to the knowledge of God. Bless her to be a peacemaker. And all of these people, so maybe I won't have time to lay hands on all of you. So I will just say... Um, Father, can the rest of you put your hands towards them? These are going to be forerunners and what God wants to do in bringing in the harvest. And as I said, it's very practical. And what I'm going to pray is that God gives each peacemaker here one idea to walk towards something, someone, a, a revelation that God has given them, a plan to start implementing it, whatever it might be, one thing that they actually start moving towards this week. Lord, we pray that the peacemakers 
would not be pew sitters, but they would be active, doing what you've called them to do, that they would be getting the revelation of what to do and how to get there. You'd give them eyes and wings, as it were, eyes to see what to do, wings to get there, and Lord, that they would be moving towards something so that this, it actually impacts the whole city and yea, even the whole state and beyond. In Jesus' name. How many of you got an idea as I was praying? One thing you can start this week. Okay, how many of you got an idea? Just start waving your hand like this. Okay, so we've got some action that's going to happen this week. Keep praying, keep moving. And for all of us, if I could get you to do one thing this week, is open your Bibles to John 17 and start praying it every single day this week and beyond until we're all part of the answer. Amen. 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 Stacy, thank you so much. She's got to get to the airport, so let her get on her way. I just want to make one comment real quick here. You know, what, what she was just talking about in regards to Catholicism, other movements, the question we need to ask ourselves is this. How much of the gospel do you need to understand to be saved? And we can so often begin to add doctrine upon doctrine upon doctrine, and uh, and that's a dangerous thing because I've known some Holy Ghost Catholics that I've been deeply impacted by. I'm telling they I had some Catholic women lay hands on me decades ago, and I had a powerful impartation. And I watched these ladies minister to these Teen Challenge guys, these little old ladies that knew how to lay hold of Jesus. And uh, you know we could we could have had a doctrinal discussion, but God was too busy touching people. And so we've got to be careful that we don't start adding to the gospel. You know, there, there's a place for discussion, uh, but we want, to, we want to judge people by the Spirit. I had a friend that's an evangelist, and he started telling me, well, don't you know that they decided in the Council of 1782 and all this stuff? I mean, the average Joe doesn't understand that. They, know, they met Jesus, okay? And so we just need to be careful. So, Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for all you've done, Lord. I ask that you'd seal it. Bless Stacy uh, and her family, Lord, as she goes. Lord, help her to get home quick. And uh, bless these. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you. We'll be back here Tuesday morning if you can make it out for prayer. God bless you. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.